Well, good morning. Welcome to Randall Church. My name is Pastor Milo. We are so glad you're here with us this morning. We are in this sermon series uh, called The Long Story Short. Uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter uh, 1, and then we'll get into chapter 2 this morning. Uh, yesterday, how many of you have had the opportunity to hike the Niagara River Gorge uh, down below the falls, right? It's a beautiful area, uh, Devil's Hole State Park or uh, Whirlpool Falls State Park. All of those areas, you get to go down there. Yesterday I was invited, uh, there was a, a guy, one of my friends had a bachelor party, and so he got all of the guys together, and what he wanted to do for his bachelor party was to go down and hike the gorge and make your way down there. He'd never been there before, and so I had the opportunity to go there, and as you're walking along and like all of this beauty of nature, then you've got these whirlpool boats that come roaring up the river. Has everyone ever seen these things that we're talking about? How many, raise your hand if you've been on that jet boat tour before. Okay. So I had the opportunity about a year ago, uh, and those of you who've been on this will understand exactly where I'm coming from. I, I got to go on that about a year ago, and um, it was incredible. It cost way too much money, and, uh, but it was, I, it might have been worth every penny. I'm not sure. Uh, it was absolutely incredible. So, the boat that I went on was a boat that's an open deck boat so that all the water comes in and splashes you and different things like that. Yesterday while we were there at the main Whirlpool Falls, there was these boats that there was, there was one that didn't have any passengers in it. It was a different boat than I'd ever seen before. And he was going, if you've been on that tour, there's the big Whirlpool. And if you've been on the jet boat tours, they always stop there. And these boats were now going over that, that last thing and heading even farther upstream, but he didn't have any passengers in it. And we looked closely and there was a drone following it. I don't know if this was like the first time that they'd ever done it and they were videoing it to like as a promotional materials, those type of things, whatever. Uh, I would like to sign up for that when the time comes is basically what I'm getting down to. Why? Well, because the, when I went on the other one, the apparently now the JV version, um, it was like nothing I'd ever experienced before. I mean, you go, and if you've ever seen these boats moving up through the thing, you see they're the size of school buses, and they're getting just tossed around by the waves. The river is incredible. There's one side of the river is flowing one direction, and the other side of the river is flowing the other direction. It's just mind-boggling. You don't understand what's going on. And you come through some of these waves, and you drop down, and the next thing you know, there is water everywhere. And, and there was one particular wave that we hit, that we went up in the air, and it seemed like we dropped 15 feet, and then the water came from everywhere that you could imagine, to the point that you don't remember your name afterwards. And it just came in, and it just hit me in the ears, and the face, and the eyes, and we came up, and the guy next to me just came up screaming, yeah! like just so excited. And I turned, and I looked, and I was like, did you see that? And he looked at me and he goes, bro! And I had snot all over my face, in my hair, and like it had just blown out, like I had literally had the snot knocked out of me. It was a good time. I share that story this morning. I love to tell a good story. I find myself yesterday hiking with these guys and telling the story and with hand motions and everything else. The reality of what we're getting into this series should be that way. We talked last week, John Eldridge says, life, you'll notice, is 
a story. I hope that I told that story in a way this morning that helped you kind of feel the moment. Because that's what life is about. Life is not a math problem. Life is not, we get up, we do this, X, and then Y, and then Z. Like, it's not that easy. Life lays out a little bit differently. It comes out scene by scene. As we started this series last week, and we'll be going through from Genesis to Revelation, we'll be going through, it's 17 weeks, we're doing the very best we can to cover the big themes of Scripture, to tell the whole story, to be able to tell you, okay, this is what's going on. We see God in Genesis, and we see God in Revelation, we see God all the way through it. He's the beginning and the end, the Alpha, the Omega, it all connects, and it's all this big story, and we get to be part of it. We're somewhere in the middle, and many of us, Stand, and as I used the illustration last week, we feel like we're holding a few of the pages of the book. And we're trying to figure out where do we fit in. It's almost, we've got a few pages of the book. We're looking around and we say, I think, I think that this event is important. I think that this character is important. I think what's happening around is important, but how does it all connect? And I pray that this series, and I pray this morning, that we can do a good job of connecting those pieces and helping you see, long story short, how our lives fit into the bigger story that God is telling you. So we started last week with the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We started there. In the beginning, God. The story has to begin there. In the beginning, the, the whole book of Genesis is about new beginnings. It reveals the beginnings of the heavens and the earth, beginnings of humanity, of marriage, of all of our brokenness, of all of our hopes and dreams. It all begins here in this first book of the Bible. Now, last week we did start with, with Genesis. We begin with creation. And, if it, and I share from you from my point of view, which is uh, what people know as a young earth creationist, the, the, the point of saying, okay, when God created the heavens and the earth, the seven days, when he did all of that, he created things in an old state already or a mature state already. And so what that means is when he created Adam and Eve, he created adults, Adam and Eve, the whole chicken and the egg argument, Right? That the idea that he created everything in its mature form. And so when you look around and you see an earth that is old, it's because God created it in an old form. But even as I get into this this week, I want you to know, like, like, like huddle up, bring it in. Guess, guess what? If, if you're coming from a different perspective where, where you don't necessarily want to totally go there with me about this young earth idea, the reality is, is that an old earth as well still fits within this paradigm. There are Christians, there are believers, as I told you last week, who would look at what we see in Scripture about days and the measurements of days. We say, is it literally seven days or is it an age? Is it an extended amount of time? I can still look at Scripture and say it is an infallible word of God and be able to go through there and say, when I see day, for, for instance, as we begin in chapter 2 this week, we're going to see the word day again in relation to how uh, the, 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 all of creation was formed and on the seventh day he rested. But there's an extended way of saying that, that God is continually at rest. And so that word day is not quite as literal as perhaps we first originally looked at it. So I'm telling you that I still have that leaning towards the young, young earth creation uh, point of view. But if you're here this morning and you're not quite following me there, I want to let you know that the truths that we're speaking about today are still just as true for you. The truths of what we're going to see in God's Word and the, and the relation to how it matters to our everyday life still matters because this, it all begins here. Because see, last week we looked at things through this lens 
And what we did is we made it through how God created everything. In chapter 1, verse 27, if you go there with me, we came across this. And we're going to get even deeper there today. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. What happens is God explains an overview in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he, get, he dives deeper, gives us a little bit more depth, gives us more perspective, more description, more to think about in chapter 2. And so as we dig in this morning, that is where we begin. We're going to be talking today about God breathing life into us. We are the very image of God and the implications that are there because of that. So if you've got that white sheet of paper in your bulletins, you can track along me so you can see where we're going this morning. We have a fill-in for you to start things off this morning. God's breath of life relates, as your fill-in, relates us to him. God's breath of life relates us to him. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. There was no one to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Verse 7 again, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now we look at the first five books of the Bible and we see Moses as the author of that. Uh, we see him, and it could be generations and generations. It would have to be generations later that this was written down. And so at that point, the oral tradition would have had to carry things forward to the point that he would be able to write things down and then God would inspire him to get it correct. But as Moses is writing this, he talks about God's breath of life relating us to him. He uses a very specific word here. And if you're Bibles, you'll see the word Lord God. If you're using a King James translation, the, the word Lord is all capped. And it's talking about the translation of the word Yahweh Elohim. And this is the first time that we see it in Scripture. Moses uses it 20 times in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And he only uses it one other time in all of his writings of what we call the Pentateuch, all of Moses' writings. He only uses it one other time in Exodus chapter 9, verse 30, when he meets God at the burning bush. It's the only other time. And then less than 10 times in the rest of the Old Testament is this word used, this word Yahweh, Elohim. The reality of it is we don't actually know how to correctly pronounce that word. I'm using it as well as I know how, as well as we have heard, but the reality is, is that Jews felt it was so personal, that God's name was so personal that they would not speak it and they will not speak it today aloud. Yahweh here is the Hebrew word for the word Lord. As I said in the, the King James Version, you would have all caps the word Lord, and that happens only a few times in the Old Testament outside of Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. So you've got this transition that happens between chapter 1 and chapter 2. So chapter 1, this is not the word that we see described 
for God or for the Lord. And in chapter 2, suddenly something changes. There's a personal nature to what is being written now because Moses is really trying to point out, go a little bit deeper, to be able to pull out the fact that God has made himself relatable to you and to me. He has shown his name. He is the I am, the great I am is the way that he is described later. So the Jewish people, when they come to this, they will either say Adonai or they will say Hashem, which means the name. If they were writing the word God in English, they would write it with G-D because even in writing it, they don't want to incorrectly say that or, or pronounce it or write it incorrectly because God's name is so personal, so infallible that they wouldn't want to tarnish it. It's a pretty beautiful thing, really, at the end of the day. And so when we talk about it, it's by the name that God revealed himself to Moses so Moses, who had penned all of this down, knows God in that intimate way when he says, I am who I am. I mean that God is self-existent. He's self-determining. He's the absolute being of all beings. And Yahweh is his personal name that he allows Moses into to know that name and allows you and me as well. And so by linking these names, by actually writing it in this way, when you look at your text and you see that this morning, Moses is telling Israel that their God, the God of the covenant that we'll learn more about, who led them out of Egypt, is the same creator God who made man and desires to bless him and all who obey him. The God of creation is the same God of history, of salvation. He is known by his people and he can be known by you and me. God's breath of life relates us to him. And another way that Moses is saying God's breath of life relates us is by showing the personal attention and deliberate care that God used in creating first Adam and then Eve. This picture that we have of Adam his, him being breath, breathed into existence, that life is being breath, breathed through his nostrils and molding him like the potter molds the, the clay. And the, the word that is being used here is into, molded into a living being. Some of your translations will say a living soul. And there's a special sense here. There's something very specific that's going on here. Face to face, God to man, revealing himself. And the breath of God is not just air. It's not just oxygen. It is God's vital, life-giving breath. Life didn't happen by some accident or some spark of lightning. No, it was God's intentional action on behalf of you and me. Think about the remarkable complexity of the human body. Physically, we are the result of two sets of 23 chromosomes which unite at conception. A single human chromosome contains 20 billion bits of information. If you were putting that, that would be about 500 million words or 2 million pages. To continue this analogy, at 500 pages a book, that means that a single human chromosome is equal to 4,000 volumes of information. And by way of comparison, in 2012, Leslie Farmer, she wrote an article called The State of Book Collections. Generally speaking, the average would say an elementary school will have roughly 12,000 books on their shelves. A middle school will offer 13,000 titles. A high school will weigh in with about 13,600 volumes in their library. 
We each have 46 chromosomes. That puts us somewhere around 185,000 volumes of information in a single cell. That's 10 times the size of any of those libraries in every single cell of your body. Do you understand the vast volume of information that we're talking about? We were carefully designed by an incredibly intelligent creator. This face-to-face, life-giving breath makes it intensely personal. God's breath of life relates us to him. Secondly, God's breath of life engages us in, here's your fill-in, work. Engages us in work. Verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put man that he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river watered the garden flowing from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first was Pishon. Its winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold in that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx were also there. The name of the second river is Gihon and its winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Some of you know that I messed up some of those words. It's okay. We're going to get through it, okay? Some of you thinking about paradise or thinking about this Garden of Eden, supposed to be the most beautiful place you could ever imagine or describe. You would not think about it this way. You would think about it as a lying in a hammock under a palm tree. But God thought about it. God created it to be what? Adam being there to cultivate it, to be there doing work. God assigned Adam also the work of naming all of the animals. So first he gave him a physical job, then he gave him a mental job as well. And that is a legitimate enterprise for him to be doing as it is for you and me today. You see, work itself is not the cause, is not caused by the fall. When we see sin enter in Genesis 3, and we're going to talk about that next week, we see work becomes toilsome, but it is not the introduction of work in itself. You see, God created us to work. God has given forms of labor which are necessary for sustaining human life. Whether you are working with your hands, it's no less significant if you are working in a a job that uses your mind, uses your facilities in that way. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, whatever you do, Do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of your inheritance. It is from the Lord Christ whom you serve. So whether you are a janitor, whether you are a rocket scientist, whether you are, you fill in the blank, whatever that happens to be, whatever God has given the skills, the abilities he has given you to do, you can take legitimate satisfaction that God has created you. He has breathed life into you so that you can work. He calls us to engage in work. Next, God's breath of life declares us morally responsible. That's your fill-in. God's breath of life declares us morally responsible responsible. Verse 16. 
the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now back in verse 9, we get the first hint that this test was going to be coming. The, 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 the fact that the presence of the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they were even present there, was going to set up a test. And verses 16 and 17, <coughs> we see this direct command. Adam can eat from any tree of the garden, it says, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And from it, if he eats from it that day, it says what? He will die. The presence of the tree, the fact that the tree is there by itself shows that by creation itself, the tree itself, all of creation, all of the trees that were there in the garden, all of the trees that exist on our planet today, the fact that they are there by anything, that there is a spiritual side to created things. It also reveals that God alone knows what is good for man and man does not know in and of ourselves. James Boyce observes, this is a commentary, the presence of this tree would have remained, reminded Adam that he was not his own God and that he was responsible at all times to his maker. Let me read that again. The very presence of this tree would have reminded Adam that he was not his own God and that he was responsible at all times to his maker. You see, God has built certain principles into the universe. You teach your child that if you violate these principles, you will be at your own peril. You teach your child, if you reach up and grab a hold of the hot pan that's on the, on the stove, you will get burned. It's part of nature. It's part of what we experience day in and day out. And you're not threatening that child by saying, don't grab a hold of it. You're, you're teaching them the parameters. You're giving them some responsibility, some understanding that all of creation has to follow these rules and these plans for us. So people have a problem with this. And you might be looking back at me now going, I, I've got a problem with this. Why would God create the Garden of Eden and then right in the center of it put this monkey wrench in the middle of things? The machinery is going to get broken at some point because it's right there in the middle of everything. Couldn't God have eliminated that and we would all be that much happier? We would all be in paradise today if he had not put that there. The reality is, is God could have eliminated that, and in doing so, he would have eliminated free choice or free will. And he could have eliminated that, and yes, the problem would be solved. But if you don't have free choice, you have robots. You program robots. But that's not what God created you see, there's no way we can live in a world where we have genuine freedom and a genuine understanding of what this world is with a, a world that can contain love and hate in the same world. We cannot see that unless we've been given the free will and the free choice to be able to see those things. And then we begin to understand what the true value of sacrificial love really is when we have the choice not to live that way. There has to be the potential to disobey there has to be the potential to sin. And there had to be, if he is a loving God, and he is, free will had to be part of the game. It had to be part of what he was creating. And with free will comes moral responsibility of knowing that you are making the choice to live morally. So God's breath of life declares us, declares you and me 
morally responsible. Next, God's breath of life establishes us an identity. It establishes us an identity. Verse 18. The Lord said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the, the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, now, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now, ladies, gals, I recognize that this is probably not your favorite passage of Scripture. There's mm -hmm. something about... Uh, uh, being in this, this term, you look at this and you go, helper? Like, is that? And you have, it, well, some of you have more issue with that than others. Is this all that I am? And I am his helper? And, and how would it feel if, if your husband, and, and if husbands, you've done this, please kick yourself in the face. If you've introduced yourself, hi, my name is Milo, and this is my helper. The word helper in Hebrew is the same word God used, however, to describe himself. You see in Psalms, Psalm 46, it says, The Lord is our refuge and our strength, a present what? Help in times of trouble. That's the same exact word that's being described here, to be this, this helper. And I need help. <laughs> I need a lot of help. And some of you know that more than others. Adam needed a helpmate, a, a, a wife for a husband is something that completes him, something that balances him out. The idea is, is almost one of polarity, of a North Pole and a South Pole, and that that balance is there. And, it, and without that, Adam is unstable. He needed a helper. In God's good graces, he created us both, male and female, and he has wired us both in that and how we're to function according to how he designed us to work. And there's much more about this that we read in the New Testament as well. This understanding of God created us for a purpose and for a being, and in that, we are not only compatible with one another, but we actually are that much better because we are together. We are better together. God, for whatever reason, his divine sovereignty has allowed me and trusted me with four small souls, three of them which are females, my three beautiful daughters, and one of which is my son, my little boy. And I get the opportunity, and one of the things that we do in our house is we understand the role, many of you do too, the role that we have as parents in raising young men and raising young Women, and as I raise my son to be a man, I need to also raise my daughters to be young women. When I'm often doing things with my son, I, I want to have that approach of this is what men do, and this is who men are. 
And I go on a date often with my daughters during the week, and we sit down, and this is how a man should treat a woman. This is, this is what it should look like. So when you are looking for a man someday, this is what you should look like. This is what should be demonstrated for you. My wife does the same thing with my son. This is how a young man should act. Ladies, daughters, this is how you should act as well. My wife and I have long conversations about this. And as you're a parent, I know that you do as well. Those of you who are grandparents here, those of you who are just, you've got gray hair and time and wisdom, and you've poured that into me and others in this church, and we thank you for that, and we pray that you will continue to do that because you know we have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> but that's the process that we all live in and the world that we all live in. And I don't want my girls to just be helpers. I want them to be brilliant and I want them to be deep because one day they will marry a husband that they need to be the iron that sharpens iron. They need to be able to challenge. They need to be able to make that husband better. better. And that husband had better be looking for, my son had better be looking for a spouse that does the same. When you have kids, all of a sudden nursery rhymes start showing up again and you didn't know that they mattered at all in the world and all of a sudden here they are everywhere you look around. You've got books in your house and you start remembering the nursery rhymes that you used to say. So what is it that little boys are made of? Snips and snails and puppy dog tails. I had to look up. Do you know what a snip is? I had no idea what a snip is. It's a leech. So what are little boys like? Leeches and snails and puppy dog tails. That's what little boys are made of. What are little girls made of? Sugar and spice. Oh, thanks. Yep, everything. Nice. In our culture today, things are not that clear. The reality is, is those questions are being answered differently today than they've ever been answered before. Sometimes in healthy ways. Sometimes in healthy ways. It is okay for a man to do some things to have compassion, to have a heart, to be close, and to be able to have feelings and emotions. Those are good things, and it's okay for a woman to be strong. But it's confused. It's confused. We live in a world where if I talk about the identity, God breathes a life that establishes us an identity. We live in a world that is in an identity crisis, to say the least. We live in a world where identity, which would be the role that you play in this world, the purpose that your life is. There are many who are confused by the role that they play, their sexual identity, they are confused by that, they don't know where they fit into this world. There are others who are confused by the purpose of their life, where do they fit into this world, why are they here, and that's why suicide rates are the highest they've ever been as far as we know. And so we live in this world, and we can look at a passage like this, and I've heard it callously stated that God ordained or God created Adam and Eve, he didn't create Adam and Steve, right? And some of us can snicker about that and we can realize how, how, as I said, callous that can be because for some of you it's absurd and it's laughable and for others, this is the world that you live in. This is reality because someone very close to you or you yourself 
have struggled through this. These real life circumstances and people we love and it's all of a sudden not so easy as a joke. And so as we look at this and we look at the identity that God has called us to, we have to remember that the church, if anything, ought to be a safe place to struggle. The church ought to be a place where we are all broken. We are all in need of salvation. We are all in need of grace. And to take a particular struggle and put it outside of the bounds of what God can do and what God can heal and what God is going to work on is a misunderstanding of the gospel itself. We are all sinners saved by grace. We all have to come to the foot of the cross at some point, and our burdens and our sins are laid there before him, and God changes that because we have this identity that he has given. And so in that, yes, I do believe that God has breathed an identity into you and to me. I do believe that I can raise my boy as a boy and that at one point maybe he'll struggle with that in his life, but when he, is, he will know that his identity is not found in who he is just because of what he looks like, but who he is because of who Jesus is and who he is because he knows his creator, God. Our identity has been breathed by God. Lastly, God's breath of life provides us marriage as a picture or a portrait. Verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. God's wa God wants men and women to become one. It's the marriage relationship that he created it takes three to make a good marriage, is the way that I've heard this. That whole shape of a triangle, that God is at the top of the triangle, and the husband and the wife are at the two corners of the triangle, and the only way they will really grow closer to one another is as they grow closer to God. And in that, as, they, as one person might grow closer to God, they'll find themselves growing closer to the one that they love as well. That was the way that God designed marriage to be. When most, marry, most couples have been away from home for a while, they've figured out their own things, they've got their way of living, and then when they start to bring those things together, that's where trouble starts at times. I remember we got married in 2001, and we went to a conference that spring of 2001. It was a marriage conference, and he talked about this idea of the triangle of God being at the top. And for me, that, was, that may have been the first time I had heard that, maybe marriage counseling before that. Ironically, we were at this marriage conference and uh, they send us home the first night for a date night. How many of you have been on a marriage conference? They, they, they force you to schedule a couple of days, but then, surprise, in the middle of it, you have to actually go spend time with your spouse, right? So they set this thing up, and we were a young married couple, and we had a good time. And, and so we, we were at home that evening, or back at the hotel that evening, and my wife thought it would be fantastically funny to enjoy a good laugh. And so what she did, as I was taking a shower, she took uh, the ice bucket that you get in the hotel room and she threw it over the top of the shower. She learned about me that if, if I'm in a corner, the whole fight or flight syndrome, apparently I have the fight reflex. And so through the shower curtain, I gave my best right hook at whatever it was that was on the other side of that shower curtain and punched my wife in the face at a marriage conference. 
only to sheepishly go back day two of the marriage conference. And they said, how was your date night? I kid you not, my wife had a black eye that morning. <laughs> Marriage is not simply about you and me. Couples, whether you're young or old, have to figure out how to work together, to live together, how to interact with one another, how to dodge some fists every once in a while. And so this was described at a conference that was a different one than that. But marriage is not only about you and me, it's about us. And using this terminology was very helpful to me. It's not you about me, it's for us. It means that us no longer looks to your parents for approval. It means that us no longer exists in a world where you and me get to make decisions on our own. Us make decisions together. And so us makes the decision to sign the mortgage on the house. Us makes the decision to purchase that car. Us makes the decisions that we want more kids. Us makes the decisions we don't want any more kids. Us makes the decision whether we will eat out tonight or not. The example that was given at this conference, the man who was speaking, he was a Civil War buff. And, and he, just, he had the greatest opportunity, he thought, ever to go to a Civil War reenactment at the Battle of Gettysburg. And, and it's a huge place, and, and whoever gave him tickets, it was for like 15 years that he had served at his church. And they gave him tickets, and there was bleachers right up close to the very front. And he said, and us decided we didn't want to go. Because that's what a marriage is. It's no longer about you and me. It's about us. You see, the Bible says that God created marriage for a bigger purpose than itself. First of all, understanding one another is part of it, but that, that triangle, using that illustration, that God is part of that marriage, and that's part of us as well. You see, marriage is a picture of a believer's relationship with God. Marriage is the earthly picture of the spiritual relationship that exists between humankind and God, the creator. And so when we read and we understand and we see in Bible, it talks about that a man in, the, in a marriage bed who knows his wife in the biblical sense, that God himself knows us in that way. We are one, in, as man and wife are one in one flesh, that we are one in one spirit before a holy God. That's why it's so important for you to work at developing a Christ-honoring marriage. You're working on the very portrait of Christ in the church that the world looks at. That's the picture that they see. They're looking over your shoulder, and God's glory is at stake. God has breathed into us through marriage a picture, an illustration that we need to be demonstrating. So the long story short is this. Every breath we draw is a gift of God's love. Every moment of life is a moment of God's grace. Every breath we draw is a gift of God's love. Every moment of life is a moment of God's grace. If that's all that you can remember from this morning, if you get that, that the breath that we have that is in our lungs, every breath that we have is a gift from God. I told you the story this morning about my four kids, and many of you know this. I wear a bracelet around my wrist that represents my son who passed away, Josiah Nathaniel Wilson. Passed away in 2010. 
He was born with a rare heart defect. We only had three chambers in his heart when he was born. We spent over 250 days in the hospital with him. We came home for a total of three days in that process. It's my little boy. It's my firstborn, Josiah. And the time that we had with him was so sweet. And we worked hard to bring him home. We had worked for months to be able to learn how to be his doctor, his physician, because his case was so difficult, there was no way we'd be able to bring him home without that. And we brought him home on our anniversary, December the 29th, 2009. And we brought him home that night, and he'd only been home at that point for about 12. He, he got home in the evening, about 5 o'clock in the evening. It was a 300-mile uh, ride back and forth, excuse me, 200-mile ride back and forth to the hospital, the specialist hospital. So that ambulance ride was a long one. It was a difficult one. But we got home. We put him to bed that night, put him to sleep. He'd struggled some, but we got him in bed. And in this, what had been a formal dining room had now become a hospital room. We had every piece of equipment that we knew how to deal with to help his condition. And about 12 hours after he had arrived home, so it was 5 o'clock in the morning, we, we had gone to sleep for about an hour and a half, two hours. And every piece of equipment, it seemed like, in that room just lit up. The alarms were going off. Panic was in our hearts. Our son was not breathing. And a little case like his, a little boy like his, we all, generally speaking, if, if we were to stop breathing, you do CPR, you, you can go without taking a breath for 10, 15 minutes, up to 30 minutes sometimes. But his little case, he didn't have that type of margin. He only had a matter of minutes. So we began the process of CPR on the little child, and, and there, there was no effect happening whatsoever. And I'll, I'll never forget what it was like for my wife to be on the phone with 911 trying to tell them the situation and that they needed to get there. And he had a tracheostomy in his throat, and so that was the direct line to get air through. And so we did CPR, and we worked at it. And something triggered in our memory of some of that training. Somewhere in there, someone had said, if... It seems like nothing else is working. Remove this tracheos, this, this, this tube that's going down his throat. Remove that and replace it if you can. You have to do it quickly because the hole's going to try to close up very quickly. And so in that moment, one of us remembered that and replaced it. And, and whatever had been clogged in that, he took one breath. After a few minutes of doing CPR, after a few minutes of struggling, of, of what was cold and dead and lifeless, it was so much different than any CPR dummy you could ever imagine. There was something horrific about it, and some of you guys have lived through this type of situation. You know what I'm talking about. But he took one breath. And in that one breath, everything changed. All he needed was one breath. And he took that one breath before the paramedics came storming through the door and they tried to scoop him up and we had more equipment in that room than they had in their, in their trailer. But the reality of it was is we knew at that moment he had taken one breath and he was okay, he was going to be okay, and he was. He lived another 30 days approximately after that, and we treasured and held every day, as it says here, every moment of life is a moment of God's grace. God, 
breathes life into us. And to be honest with you, I feel like I've had the privilege of seeing that face to face, eyeball to eyeball with my little boy when life was breathed back into him. And I will be forever changed because of it. As the band comes up this morning, we will sing a song. It's your breath and my lungs. So we pour out our praise. Many of you have lived a life, maybe you lived a life far from God at one point, but today you say that you live a life of following hard after Christ with all that you have, which means that spiritually speaking, his life has been breathed into you. Why are you living a life as if nothing has changed, as if nothing is different? What I saw in my own two eyes was that it once was dead and now it was alive. Life has been breathed. There's something totally different and totally changed. Every breath that we draw is a gift from God. And spiritually speaking, God has also breathed life into you and into me. We should be forever changed. We should not be able to go through life cruising along in neutral. We should go through life where everything is alive. And the story that I told at the beginning about rivers washing us back and forth, that should be the way that life looks and feels because we are alive in that moment. He has breathed life into you and into me and all of the human race. Jesus, when he walked the earth, John 14, 6, his familiar passage, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to Father except through me. Physically speaking, he breathed life into us. Through Jesus Christ, his son, he breathes life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, Lord, this morning, I pray that your word has come alive. I pray as we read through this document that has been around for years, Passages that we may be familiar with. Or that there would be something that sparks, something, a breath of fresh air, if it would, that breathes life into this week, into this afternoon, into our relationships. Lord, let us hunger after relationship with you because you have breathed life into that relationship. Let us hunger after relationship with others here in the church because you have breathed life into those relationships. Let us hunger for relationships with the world, with the people that we are living and working around day in and day out because you have breathed life into that and given us reason and meaning and purpose and identity for that. And God, we praise you in it for it is your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you this morning. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.